you would, open with me to Deuteronomy chapter 16. We're going to cover a relatively short passage this morning. Uh, part of why is that I want to give a bit of an introduction to where we're going to be in the coming weeks. So we're going to start here in chapter 16, verse 18, and then we're going to be in a section that continues all the way through the end of chapter 18. So we're going to do a short introduction to that passage, look at a few verses, but we're also going to talk about, we're going to have an extended introduction to talk about the, the topic at hand, namely governmental authority. But the text for this morning will be sixteen, chapter 16 of Deuteronomy, verses 18 through 20. And this is what the word of the Lord says. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I think for most parents, they have a a recollection of the first time they held one of their children. And the immense weight and overwhelming responsibility that now becomes very real through the, the tangible holding of the child. I remember when my oldest was not seven feet tall and the first time I met him and just picking him up and just realizing this, caring for this individual is beyond. He needs more affection, more instruction, more protection, more provision than I can possibly offer on my own. I think most parents feel that the first time they hold one of their children. And and I think we're supposed to. I think that's, that's there to, to beckon us in a direction, a Godward direction. I've talked before about the dynamic of when we're caring for children, and I think this is where that overwhelming feeling comes from. There's a necessary peculiarity to Christian biblical parenting. Oftentimes we have a dichotomy that I think is false, that, there's, that parents can either be loving or they can be instructive and authority figures. And the biblical calling is to be inextricably both of those, Amen. to be when, 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 when your child thinks of you, they should absolutely think, that is my loving father. And at the same time, to say that that is my father who teaches me. There should be no separation between the two. That's, that dichotomy that should not exist. So how is it then that we can capture that necessary peculiarity? How is it then that we can begin to handle this immense responsibility with any way that actually honors God and is good for the child? And I think it boils down to this foundational piece, which is that, these little image bearers of ours are ultimately God's image bearers. Amen. And as we understand these little image bearers as ultimately being God's image bearers, that should create in us an overwhelming affection because they are so much more precious than anything we could create because we ultimately didn't create them. You know, if I create a lump of Play-Doh, that's, that's not valuable. God's created a human, an image bearer of the divine. That's far more precious. So when we understand our children are image bearers of God, ultimately, that inspires greater affection, greater care. It also helps us to know that because they are made for God, they must follow God's word for them to thrive. They are made as image bearers with a specific design, and that design is oriented towards following God and worshiping God. 
So if we are to pursue this task, we must understand that these little ones are ultimately God's image bearers. We also have to understand what's at stake, why, why this task is so important. And the reason is that, one, part of that design that they have in worshiping God means that they're only going to thrive in the glorifying of God in their lives. And what we teach them and how we love them and how we orient them towards God is going to have an eternal impact on them in some way. Certainly we don't determine their eternity, but we will have an impact on their eternity. And that's either going to end up in heaven or hell. So what we need to be as parents is we need to be teaching our children that they are not made for selfishness or self-autonomy. They are made for submitting to God. And they will thrive in submitting to God. And as we teach them that they are designed to submit to God by submitting to us as parents, we are training them that as they would go out from our household and develop their own households, those households are going to be subject to the civil authorities that are around them. And they must live in subjection to those civil authorities. And that is additionally how they will thrive. And as we are teaching them to be subject to our authority and to other authorities, we are reinforcing that their subjection to God's authority spills into every area of life. And again, that leads them to blessing. As we, as we set before them, they are designed for submission to God. We also set before them they are insufficient for that submission. That they do deviate from God's standard. And that God has sent his son to redeem sinners just like them. And there's blessing to be found in turning from sin and submitting to Christ. We see all around us that the, the tendency in our culture to not submit, to resist authority, to be focused on self, it does not lead to thriving. The people who act like this is a good way of living, they're not truly happy. We see that all the time. And we see in large swaths the people who follow them. We, we are so profoundly rich, and yet we're so profoundly depressed. Why? Because we're not made for selfishness. We're not made for resisting authority. We're made for submitting to authority. So the main point we're going to consider this morning is that human authority is meant to be a blessing to those under it. Human authority is meant to be a blessing to those under it. We're going to discuss how it's a blessing as we go forward, but to kind of get a walk up to where we are in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, I, I want us to consider uh, God had revealed his glory to Moses on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 34, God declares his name. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, when God's declaring his glory there, I, I, would, I would put forward a hypothesis, and you, you're, I mean, if you don't agree with this, that's fine, but here, here's what I would say. God's declaration of who he is, his declaration of his glory starts with his name being repeated. The Lord, the Lord. God is devoted to his own triune love and glory. There's the first command, to love the Lord your God. The Lord, the Lord. From there, we see that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God shows love for others, loving his neighbor, his covenant neighbor. So God's glory, I think, is oriented towards these first two great commands, loving God and loving others. So how that helps us is to understand that what's going on in Deuteronomy, and we see this in chapter 4, spilling over into chapter 5, where we talk about the 10 words. God is giving his people a greater explanation of his glory, even in the Ten Commandments. 
So that Israel will therefore image God by loving God and loving others. This dynamic of God's revealed glory being a means by which people are conformed to that image is, I think, shown physically by how Moses is on Sinai, seeing the glory of God, hearing his name proclaimed, and he comes down and he's what? Glowing. He's literally glowing with the glory of God. He's imaging the glory of God with this shining dynamic that's going on. And I think that's what we're seeing here in Deuteronomy. God's calling Israel to be a nation that, that, that images his glory to the other nations in chapter 4 and then expounds on what that's to look like in chapter 5. We've argued that the 10 words, I think the first four are oriented towards the love of God. The last six are oriented towards the love of neighbor. And then what we've seen from there is that Deuteronomy 6 through 26 is structured around those 10 words to give further explanation for how Israel is being called to image God's glory in adherence to these 10 commands. So all this is to say, we're made as image bearers. I'm going to boil it down to a nutshell here. We're made as image bearers to love God and love others because that is how we reflect the glory of the God who is devoted to his own glory and to loving his people in covenant faithfulness. So that's how Deuteronomy is structured. Now we come to a section here where I believe the section is meant to mirror the fourth word about honoring one's father and mother. So I think we get some hints about that being the case for this section with what's said in this passage we're going to look at. If you notice in verse 20, it says, Justice only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's a very similar phrasing to what is said in Deuteronomy 5.16 about honoring your father and mother, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is showing that there is a proper submission to God and those human authorities he's put over us that leads to our thriving in his presence and long life in his presence. So it seems to be a parallel there. Additionally, the word for honoring that's used in Deuteronomy 5.16 in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that word for honoring is used in the New Testament. We saw it in 1 Peter 2 for talking about how you're to honor the, all people, to honor the emperor. It's used as well um, in Ephesians 6 to talk about how children are to honor their parents. So even in the New Testament, this word that's picked up is shown to be in parallel. Honoring parents is parallel to honoring governmental authorities. So what we're going to do now is a little peculiar. We're going to have an extended introduction. And what we're going to do in this extended introduction is talk about these spheres of sovereignty. Then there's three main ones. The family, the church, and the civil sphere. So the family, the church, and the civil sphere. Now, uh, this, is, this is kind of an interesting topic to cover because I don't think, especially in the United States in the last hundred years, we have not had a lot of deep discussion about these different spheres of sovereignty or about how they relate to one another. We oftentimes see churches follow the family rule of we don't discuss religion or politics, and unfortunately churches follow that a bit too closely, even though unfortunately oftentimes there are politics present. But I'll digress from that. So this is, this is going to be, I think this is a difficult topic. It's been a difficult topic for me to study, and I think in the last few years I've really had to hammer it out, and I'm still hammering it out. So hopefully this will be helpful. The other challenge when we're talking about spheres of sovereignty is to avoid circular logic. Because it's spheres. It's a circle joke. Sorry. I, had to, I, couldn't, I couldn't resist. But we, want to, we, do, we do want to think about these biblically. We don't want to make up our rules here. There's a great temptation to do so. I've been helped with 
with this topic by several uh, guys, and I, I want to note it up front because I, did, I just don't want to get off track and miss and then plagiarize or anything like that. Um, Matt had recommended a book by Joseph Booth that was particularly helpful about spheres of sovereignty. The guys who do the Just Thinking podcast, Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, uh, they have stuff on their podcast if you like to listen to things, and it's all free. So they have stuff on their podcast that's really helpful. They also have a book called Just Thinking About the State, and I think it's less than 200 pages. It's not very long, but it's really good. Uh, Glenn Sunshine, he has a book on the history of government and the, life, and, and the thought and theology of Christians throughout history, and that's really good. Owen Strand has some really good podcasts as well if you like to listen. And then Joel Webin is a pastor who has a YouTube channel, and he has some really good short YouTube videos that you can find as well. So I'm trying to be a merciful recommender of resources here. So if you like to listen, if you like to watch, if you like to read, I have a little bit of something, and none of them take that long. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, and I'll say as well, I, there's so many things that are helpful from those men. Um, I don't necessarily agree with every point, but I do think they kind of give a good trajectory, and I have been helped uh, by them. So, that being said, we're going to discuss these uh, three spheres of sovereignty, the family, the church, and the civil magistrate. And what I'm going to do is I want to talk about these spheres at different points in redemptive history, because how they are manifest in humanity kind of takes shape through redemptive history. So we're going to talk about three stages for these three spheres. We're going to talk about before the fall, We're going to talk about under the Old Covenant, and we're going to talk about under the New Covenant. So before the fall, in the Old Covenant, and then in the New Covenant. So before the fall, God made Adam, and God made Adam, in my estimation, to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. The kingly aspect is pretty obvious. He was to take dominion over the entirety of the creation. He was meant to work and to keep the garden. Those are the words that are going to be used, like you see in the book of Numbers, to describe what the priests are to do in the tabernacle service. So in that way, Adam is parallel to what a priest is supposed to do. He additionally is supposed to take the word that God has spoken to him and to minister that to his wife for her blessing and protection. So in that way, he's functioning as a prophet. So Adam is an original prophet, priest, and king. And he is the head over all three of these spheres. He is... The head over humanity as the father. He is the head over the family. He is meant to be that king who rules over the civil sphere. He's meant to be that priest who works for the blessing and relationship of God of his family to God as a sort of priest. So he is over all three spheres originally. And yet, as an image bearer, what we're reminded of with Adam is that Human authority is always under the authority of God Almighty. So there is no human authority that is ultimate in this calculus. Even from the state before the fall. Adam before the fall is still an image bearer. He is still squarely under the authority of God. Obviously, the fall takes place. Adam, instead of ruling as a prophet, priest, and king over the serpent, comes underneath the rule of the serpent and follows his instruction, even as the serpent tries to flip the order. The order was God ruling through man and man leading his wife. And Satan flips that upside down. He tempts the woman so that the man will follow the woman, ultimately because they don't want to follow God. So from the outset, let's note here that when we resist God's authority structure, it does not lead to blessing. It leads to literal cursing. So the fall happens. And as we go forward in the biblical narrative, what we see is that these, these offices start getting split so that no one individual really handles them all, 
himself going forward. We see instances where for a time someone does, but no one does it perfectly. And we see why it would be split. I mean, if you can imagine with me juggling uh, three difficult things to juggle, I don't know. Chainsaws usually are like the crazy thing they always talk about when they're, or something on fire. I mean, who knows? I couldn't juggle three tennis balls. So it, it, it could be whatever you want. But if you imagine that, that difficult dynamic of juggling and then you blindfold yourself, it's impossible. That's what happens. Like this is a hard task that Adam's given before the fall. In light of the fall, it's essentially impossible. In his fallen state, he cannot do this faithfully. So we see this splitting of, of the task. You see further delegation like in Exodus 18 when Jethro's counseling Moses that what he's trying to do in delineating judgment for all the people, he can't do that by himself. He needs to delegate that authority to smaller judges under his authority. And then we talked about this last week even with the idea of deacons. Even in the redeemed church of Jesus Christ, none of us is sufficient to just do everything ourselves. You have apostles focusing on teaching. You have deacons focusing on ministry. And certainly, like we talked about, there's spillover in that. But we can't handle heading up every single thing that's going on around us. We're not sufficient for the task. So we see this starting to split. And then in the Old Covenant, as God makes a covenant with Israel at Sinai, we see that these spheres split in this regard. Adam had been the head over all three. And in the Old Covenant system, there were heads of families fathers who would rule patriarchy and then what we see is the church and civil sphere are joined together in the old covenant this is important because this is not going to be the case when we come to the new covenant but in the old covenant if you wanted to become part of the assembly the church of god and i mean that in the sense of not the denomination but in in the sense of coming to god and being part of his people in the old covenant you would have to come under the civil magistrate of israel as well you can't do one without the other so in the Old Covenant, the church and the civil magistrate are joined together in the theocratic nation of Israel. That nation itself was led by men who functioned as prophets, priests, or kings. The prophets would minister the word of the Lord to the people. The priests would mediate the presence of God to, with the people. And then the kings would administer the standard of God's word to the people by rendering righteous judgment. That was their calling, at least. Unfortunately, when we look at what happens in Exodus 32, we see that Israel, called to be a kingdom of priests, meant to prophetically minister the word of God to the surrounding nations. They're meant to be like a group version of Adam. They are all too like Adam. Because just like Adam ignored the word of the Lord and followed the serpent, Israel ignores the word of the Lord and follows what? An animal, a calf. So we see that they're following the same pattern. So what happens in the new covenant is we have a perfect prophet, priest, and king who can handle all of these offices himself. And he comes and he crushes that serpent and undoes the sins of his people as a perfect priest. And now he is reigning as that perfect king. Matthew 20 is very clear about this. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. He is that new and better Adam who brings all those offices together in himself. And he is the one who reigns as the perfect Adam, administering the rule of God over all of creation as God the Son incarnate. So there is a king who reigns at every point now after the ascension of Jesus Christ. Or I guess you could say since the incarnation. There's always been a king since then, but now he reigns in power in Romans 1 terms as having achieved the victory that he came to achieve. So there's a king who reigns. 
And there's no escaping it. How God administers his rule through his son, Jesus Christ, is that families are still led by fathers, but we have a shift here. The church now is headed up by elders, but the church does not take on the legislation of laws in the civil sphere. There's a civil magistrate that is called God's servant in Romans 13 that is meant to execute the laws of the land to make sure that those who practice evil are punished and those who do good are rewarded. The church is headed up by elders for its specific mission of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. So to consider now under the new covenant how those spheres are not to intersect. I'm going to talk about each sphere and talk about how each sphere cannot become the other sphere. So to, uh, to illustrate, let's talk about the sphere of the family. The family is not allowed to take control of the church and turn the church into a tribal institution headed up by that father of the family. The church belongs to the head, Jesus Christ. It is his bride. It is his family. This is where church politics should come to die because none of us gets to claim to be the king over the church. Additionally, the church, or sorry, excuse me, the family is not to take control of the government. Mafia rule is not biblical. Families don't get to dictate how they want everyone to live underneath them. To consider the sphere of the church. The church is not to take over the civil sphere, and institute some sort of theocracy. We have seen how that has detracted from the mission of the church at various points in redemptive history. That is not to say that the church has no prophetic role towards the government. We have a very significant prophetic role towards the government, which we'll discuss in a moment. Now, when we're considering the, the sphere of the church, the church is not to enter into the family sphere and seek to replace dads. The church is meant to equip fathers for their ministry in the home, not replace them. And it is from the faithfulness of men who are especially gifted in their ministry of the home that elders are therefore found. It is through the faithfulness in the home that we see who's qualified to therefore be faithful in the home of Jesus. You be faithful in your own household, and that is a qualification for being equipped uh, to be faithful in the household of God. We see that in 1 Timothy 3 with the qualifications for elders. It does not matter how gifted or talented a pastor or youth pastor is. He can never replace a father. To talk about the sphere of the government. The government is not to step into the family sphere and act as the father over the family, the provider for the family, nor the teacher of the family. Christians should resist public education for this reason. It is not the government's job. The government is not to seek to um, make itself the religious end of the people. We should not have to pinch incense to Caesar. Because the government is not meant to step into the sphere of the church and make itself ultimate. That is tyranny. The government, even as a servant, is squarely under God. And our government is squarely under a constitution. We will return to that point in just a little bit as well. So these spheres are are meant to have specific ranges of jurisdiction. 
They cannot spill over into one another. So how do we understand how to interact as we live in these spheres? And I think that boils down to understanding what the word honor means from Deuteronomy 5.16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So what does that word honor mean? And I think we get a hint because that word for honor is going to come up, come up again in Deuteronomy 28.58. And that word for honor is going to be used to describe the glorious name of God. So to honor is to, to give a sort of glory to the one over you in obedience. So it's not just obeying the authority figure. It's obeying that authority figure with respect. And we even see how when it comes to the government in, in uh, New Testament fashion, it's made plain. We are to pay our taxes. We are to render an honor to the government that includes payment. We see the same dynamic in 1 Timothy 5 with widows. Those who are um, in a position where their parents are in need should financially support those parents who are in need. You should honor your parents by financially supporting them. Now, when we think about this dynamic of taxes, this is becoming increasingly relevant for us. It was certainly relevant even when we discussed the dynamic of when that command to pay taxes was given. Rome was not a perfect government. I think that's a pretty fair statement. We, we talked yesterday about the dynamic of what, what, what would someone in California be obligated to do with paying their taxes? Because you know what that government's using those taxes for, and it is unbiblical. So should you not pay your taxes? And the answer, I think, biblically speaking, is that you do pay the taxes. Once you, once you do your obligation to pay the taxes, it is squarely in the hands of the government. It is no longer, you don't have to give an account for what they're going to do with it. They will give that account before God. You do not. So our job is simply to pay the taxes, and that, that is the end of our responsibility. Just pay our taxes like we're commanded. When it comes to the wickedness they do with that tax money, they will give the account. So we need to just trust God and submit to the commands and do what we are called to do. Jack was pointing out that Calvin notes that giving your taxes to the government is a form of worship. It is a command that Christ has given us, and we worship Christ by following in that command. And when we're talking about this dynamic of what does honor mean, it is obeying with respect. So when you pay your taxes, it is not taxes with a, it's a taxes with a praise God. It is with respect. We pay our taxes with respect, not with grumbling. This is going to be an important point as we go forward. Um, We want to have a a blameless testimony before the civil magistrate. We'll talk about why. But let's just lay it out up front. It's mainly, squarely, part of our worship to have that blameless testimony. So we need to worship Christ rightly by submitting to the governments in a biblical way. Now, that being said, honoring does not mean following a human authority in sin. We are not to follow human authorities in sin. Because there is an authority that is above every human authority. And we see biblical examples of this. Two that are particularly challenging that I want us to really think through and pray through. The Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1, they do not submit to Pharaoh's edict to kill the babies. In addition, when they're called to give an account for these babies, they lie. And the biblical response to that is praise and commendation. 
we have to square with that. Rahab. Rahab has a situation where these Israelite spies are right there. And what does she do? She protects them and she lies. And what's the result? She is commended and praised. Gideon, even with his father, destroys his idol. Daniel disregards the civil magistrate telling him he can't pray, and he prays. I think this is a fair example. If you think this is off base, I'd be glad to hear it uh, later on, so feel free to come tell me. Jesus was declared worthy of death, and he did not submit to that on the third day. (laughs) He came out of that grave. It did not matter. He was fulfilling the will of the Father. He is the reigning king. He does as he pleases. And there are examples of resisting government according to his all-surpassing lordship. When we consider the dynamic of <clears throat> uh, what we see in 1 Peter 2 and in Romans 13, uh, let's, uh, let's actually just go over to 1 Peter 2. I think this, this will be helpful. So if, if you'll go over to 1 Peter 2 and look at verse, starting verse 13 with me. And, and I'll start by talking about this dynamic. When you look at what the government is called to be in Romans 13 terms, the government is called to be a servant to God. A servant to God. And their, their task as a servant to God is, as we talked about, to punish the evildoer and to reward those who do good. And what's important to understand with that dynamic is the government does not get to dictate what good and evil mean because they are a servant. That means they are under a master. It is the master who dictates what good and evil means. You see this in 1 Peter 2. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The root words for what's talked about for evil and good right there is used in 1 Peter 3 as well, pulling from Psalm 34. So if you look at 1 Peter 3, verse 10, it says, For whoever desires to live life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God is the one who dictates what is good and what is evil. And I was praying, I was praying about how the, the psalmist is instructing in the fear of the Lord. Because it is the Lord who dictates what good and evil means. And so when we consider what the church's role is in interacting with the government, we, we don't take the government's job, but we do have a prophetic role to play in our interaction with the government. We see this with John the Baptist. He tells Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He speaks the word of the Lord to him and tell him, tells him what is truly lawful. Herod does not get to dictate the lawfulness. Additionally, we see in Acts 5, Peter and the apostles are told they're not to go preach in the gospel. And what do they say? We have to be God rather than man. They're telling them, you are outside the bounds of your sphere. And they speak a prophetic role to these governing authorities. Additionally, in Acts 16, Paul is in, uh, I believe, Philippi. I think that's right, Philippi. Um, you might have to check me on that one. Paul, I'm, I'm, all right, I'm going to just check it out. 
So in Acts 16, Paul is in... Let me double check. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Paul's in Philippi. So Paul's in Philippi. And he's a Roman citizen. And that means there is a legal process. He has legal rights as a citizen that were completely forsaken by the civil magistrate in Philippi. And what they ask him to do is, how about you leave quietly? And he says, no, there is a law over this land that you have betrayed, and so I will not just leave quietly. And this is where we're saying, he is, he is speaking to them about what is right and wrong, and he's saying that these civil magistrates have a law that they have forsaken. This is where our constitution becomes important as well. We should be able to say, if you're betraying the Constitution, we don't have to submit to that. Because there is a law that goes over and above them. I think that's the exact dynamic from Acts 16. Again, we might not agree on all these points, but I think there's a biblical case to make for them. To talk about how this might look in our day and age, consider with me uh, for a moment that Colossians 1 lays out very specifically that Christ is the head of the body, the church. And certainly, there is a special relational relationship between our body and Christ because the Spirit dwells in our body. He is Lord over all bodies, but He has a special relationship with our body through the Spirit that dwells in our body. 1 Corinthians 7, we see a dynamic where a husband and a wife have a unique claim, very specifically, on one another's bodies. Children that come from our bodies and live in our house... We have a right as parents to administer medicine to them and food to them as we see fit as those who came from our body and who reside in our home. We see this dynamic play itself out in the church as well. We are children of the elect lady, is how I take it from 2 John, and we partake of the food of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. And yet, with all that, Romans 14 tells us, you do not get to tell someone else in the church, the body, you don't get to tell someone else in the body, what sort of food or drink they're allowed to have contrary to their conscience. We don't have that authority in the church. Elders don't have that authority in the church. And I think it's important to note that this comes right after Romans 13, obviously. But I think what the import there is that Paul did not have in mind the government trying to take sovereignty over what goes in and out of someone's body when he said that we are to submit to the government. That is not their sphere. That's not even the church's sphere. The only exceptions to that body sovereignty are for Christ, for a husband and wife, and for parents. Not for the civil magistrate. So this is where a vaccine mandate from the government, Christians are under no obligation to obey. Because the government does not have authority over a Christian's body. That is never laid out in scripture. Certainly with the vaccine topic, there's more room for conscience as far as if someone believes they should take it or not. That's not the question. The question is, does the government have the right to dictate that for you? And I think the biblical answer is clearly no. Now, I, I, obviously, I've, that's a pretty strong statement. But I want to return to an earlier point I made, which is that we as Christians should have a testimony of being eagerly inclined to submit to the government with respect to the government. And I have to confess about this. Like, there's, there's little comments I'll make about different politicians that are just not appropriate because they're making fun of them. I should be praying for God to save them and bless them, not making fun of them. So I have to confess and repent about that as well. 
So when I'm saying inclined to submit, I mean inclined to submit out of respect and a compassionate love for the salvation of even the most lost politician in our day. And, and here's the thing. Obviously, that rules out being an insurrectionist. It rules out being a terrorist. But what that does is that when we have a definitive biblical grounds for not submitting to the government, it puts us in a position to have a very powerful testimony. The civil magistrate should look at us as Christians and say, these are the people who submit to us and respect us the best. And so when we do have an occasion where we should resist, it should mean something at that point. It should give them pause. And if we are critical and rude and demeaning towards the government, even in private conversation, it is going to eat away at that witness and the effectiveness of our prophetic rule to speak the truth to the government. So there are times, I believe, biblically, where we have biblical grounds to resist the government's authority, but how we do that needs to be in, in a resistance that is biblical itself. And we also need to understand that it's not going to come without cost. There could be significant cost for this, and we have to understand that. So I, I hope that was helpful. Um, Yeah, I hope, I hope that was helpful. I certainly haven't said any, everything that could be said about government, family, and the civil sphere, uh, or in the church as well. But hopefully that, that'll get us in the right direction. Now, I want to just consider these, these three verses back in Deuteronomy chapter 16. So in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, it says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So they are to establish these localized authorities, judges who would look at cases and render a judgment, and officers that seem to be kind of similar to, as you look at the term, how it's used in the Torah. It seems to be kind of like a, a military police officer that would enforce the law in, in the area. But there's some debate about if these two terms actually describe one office. I don't think it's overly important, but that's how I would take it. Um, but I think what we're seeing here is that there, there is an expansion of the thought from Deuteronomy 5 about how one is to honor their parents. Parents are meant to teach their children submission to authority as a way of preparing them for the civil sphere. They have to be taught to submit for a number of reasons. One of them is to prepare them for interacting with that civil sphere as, Lord willing, they go out and establish their own households. And why that's important as well is that if we orient them towards understanding a submissiveness in every area of life, that's going to train them to see that submitting to God's authority in area of life is truly the means of blessing. It leads them to enjoying the presence of God in full submissiveness in full submissiveness, in a way that allows them to enjoy the rest that's been discussed in chapters 15 and 16. If they resist God's authority, they will not enter his rest, is how this is going to go on to say. If we don't prepare our children for a submissive life under God, we will teach them that it's fine for them to resist authority. And if they resist the civil magistrate, if they resist God, their life is going to be one of chaos. Not order, and it will end in curse, not blessing. We see this all through 
the book of, of Kings. Wicked kings uh, training the people for unsubmissiveness for God or unsubmissiveness to God. So one of the pivotal questions here then is what is righteous judgment? What does righteous judgment mean? And I think the passage is going to show us here. It says in verse 19, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. They are not to do their judging in the pursuit of material gain. That is not the point of the human authority. We pay the taxes for the government to be sustained, but for a government official to be using that authority ultimately for their wealth and not for the benefit of those under them, that is unbiblical. It is wicked. They are not to be exhibiting, they are not to show partiality. We see this dynamic back in Deuteronomy chapter 1. They are not to show partiality either to the great or to the small. Leviticus 19 and Exodus 23 go on to say the same thing. You are not to show partiality to the rich or to the poor. The, the phrasing here about partiality, it could be literally rendered, you're not to recognize faces. You're not to see who's in front of you, see if they're rich or poor, see if there's someone you know or not, and then tilt the scales according to that. And this is hard because you would think, you would think we sang in the Psalms, like we are not to mock the poor. That is wicked and heinous. And so this is hard because you would think if something was allowed, it would be tipping the scales towards the poor. But that's not allowed. And, and, because one, it's not biblical. But, and two, what that can create is mob justice. You see this in the French Revolution. If the poor start tilting the scale in their favor, that doesn't mean they're going to handle everything righteously themselves because they're fallen just like the rich person is. And we've seen this dynamic in the 20th century. And the name of partiality towards the poor, socialism, communism, Marxism in general, led to the destruction of 100 million people, many of them poor. What this has proven is that Proverbs is right. It says, like a roaring lion, or I'm sorry, yeah, like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. And that wicked ruler over the poor people can be the poor people who took the, the rule for themselves. Any wickedness is going to be a terror to the poor people under its rule. Even if it's partiality towards the poor. It says, when the righteous, and this is Proverbs 29 too, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. We have to understand that all injustice leads to suffering. Even if it were to be partiality towards the poor. It leads to suffering and it leads to destruction. And this is where we have to be careful as we consider how to vote as Christians. I think it's rather obvious that if you look at what the Democrats proclaim they stand for in their platform, it is godless. It is demonic. There's no avoiding that. And I don't even just mean the sexual perversion or the abortion. Their economic policies are not biblical. And their economic policies not only are not biblical, many of them have been enacted for some number of decades, and yet there's no willingness to look at that ineffectiveness over decades and to recognize it for what it is. So it's unbiblical in every sense. Now, that being said, when we look at the Republicans, I think they are lacking in various ways. I don't think they're laying forward the gospel as the ultimate hope that we need as Americans, the ultimate solution that we need as a nation. We are certainly not required to vote for Republicans, so hear me clearly. I, I think the Democrats and their platform is demonic. 
I don't think that means the Republicans are on the side of God necessarily. So I think there's some liberty of conscience as we approach this. I don't believe a Christian can vote in good conscience for a Democrat. I don't think a Christian has to in good conscience vote for a Republican. I hope that's clear. If it's not, please, please find me afterwards. I, I would say even if you do feel inclined in your conscience that you feel like you should vote for a Republican, please don't put your hope in them. They're, they're not going to satisfy your hope. Don't put your hope in them. There's one king who reigns over all of them, and we need to put our hope in him. And at the same time, I think we could say it's fair to be thankful that our governor is Bill Lee and not Gavin Newsom. We should be thankful for that as what it is. Not putting our hope in him, but thankful for what we do have. Similar to how parents are meant to image the glory of God for the benefit of their children, the government is meant to image the rule of God for the benefit of those who are under their subjection. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. This verse in Deuteronomy 16, 19 is building off of that. The civil government is meant to be like God. They are not to be partial. They are not to take a bribe. That's how it is to be in the civil sphere. That's how it's to be in the church. And we'll talk about that more next week, that when we look at how we administer the truth, it is not towards one class of people over another. And this is also informative for how we are to use the authority that parents have in the home over the family, specifically for fathers. It helps us to know that the standard for how we rule in any of these spheres that we would be called to have authority is God's word, not our whims. It is meant to reflect God's impartiality, God's resistance of bribery. That is how our rule is to be. We are to come under God's rule in God's way according to his standard. It also shows us that we have to address deviation when there's a straying from that standard. And if we can talk about where that addressing of deviation starts, consider with me what we just read. It says, you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. What that means is none of us is immune to these dangers. None of us. So when we think about using authority in the family, in the church, in the several government, we had best be ready to admit when we have done something wrong and repent accordingly. No matter how wise or righteous we are, we can be corrupted. And we had, we had best addressed deviation with a level of seriousness because James 1 is very clear. If we let sin sit and fester, it does not stay the same size. Sin does not stay the same size. It grows. And it doesn't just grow. It bears something out of its growth. And that is namely death. When we go to God's word, we see how addressing deviation is to be done. We have a standard. We see how necessary it is. We also are given scales to know how to address things with proper measure and weightiness. All sin will send you to hell. Let me be clear. But there are sins that are laid out in Scripture as being greater and lesser. Jesus tells Pilate this exact thing. So when we are looking at how to apply this, like for a father, there's times where something happens. Like let's say I have one of my boys... Uh, helping me with a project, and I asked him to go get me 
uh, Phillips head screwdriver. And he brings me a flathead. I'm not going to do discipline for that. I mean, if it's one of my three-year-olds, like, they don't know the difference. Like, so that, that's an instance where I'm going to address them and say, this is what a Phillips head looks like. He brought me a flathead. So let's go get a Phillips head. I'm going to teach him. That's all. But let's say one of my sons hits his brother and steals his truck. We're going to have to have a consequence and we're going to have to have restitution at this point. This is going to be more substantial. This is weightier. And this is where we have to understand that addressing these seemingly little things while they're children is important. Because think about it. Let's say they're 18 and 16 all of a sudden. And one brother hits the other and steals his truck. We just got assault in Grand Theft Auto. We have to address these little things so they don't grow into deadlier things. And so how do we do this? We go to the standard. We go to the word. And as we come together as the people of the word, the people of God, we ask for help. And this is where coming together on Sunday to start with the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ allows us to use our authority in a way that is constantly loving. We don't always have to address things because there's not always deviation. But what there should always be is a love and affection for those under our care. And why that's so important is for a number of reasons, but one of them is that when we do have deviation that needs to be addressed, it's going to be in a context of love. There's a trust that daddy wants what's best for me. So we have to be a constantly loving people, but at the same time be a people that is committed to truth and addressing deviation from the truth. Verse 20 says, Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The power of the rulers, the power of the magistrate, and we'll see this when we talk about the king from Deuteronomy 17. The power is found in adherence to God's standard of justice, to God's word. The king's success is not in his horses or his wives or his gold. It is in him riding the Torah. It is the prophet that's coming like Moses in Deuteronomy 18, whose power is found in proclaiming the word to the people. The word of God is powerful. That is why Joshua is going to be commanded. And we'll talk more about these parallels later, not in this sermon, because I'm going to, we have potluck. <laughs> Joshua is commanded this very thing to meditate on the word. That's his power in, conquer, in conquering many things, is adherence to the word. The blessed man of Psalm 1, who is like a tree in a renewed garden of Eden, his power is found in his adherence to and meditation on the word of God. That king is this, from Psalm 1, we, see, we read about in Isaiah 11. That's the king who delights in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I think Isaiah is picking up on the themes we're seeing here in Deuteronomy 16, showing us that the only one we can put our hope in to do this is the son of David, Jesus Christ. So this is where we have to consider our hope has to be in Christ. Christ, through his perfect Justice as the perfect prophet, priest, and king. As you read Isaiah 11, you saw how he's going to bring about a new creation 
where the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory. He's going to do that through a new exodus, redeeming his people from their sins. And so we cannot look at this current situation and start putting our eternal hope in this current context. Our hope has to be in Christ. Two quick application points with that. One, this is where social justice is such a failure and such an unbiblical failure. We talked about how partiality is to not recognize faces. Social justice is literally about not just recognizing the face, but focusing on the face. What ethnicity is that face? What gender is that face? What sexuality is that face? Okay, well, depending on those dynamics, we're going to tilt that scale more and more in their favor, depending on how they line up. And we do, and social justice does that because there's a commitment to seeing inequality of outcomes. If the outcomes are the same, there must be injustice. Well, the biblical standard is, do you have evidence to show that? And their answer is, I don't need to. That's not biblical justice. That is a sort of wickedness that leads to destruction, and we already have seen that in spades. The equality that we're called to enact as authority figures is not equality of outcomes. It is an equal standing before the law. It is to have equal weights and measures that reflects that every image bearer is equally an image bearer. As we consider applying this for uh, men who are heads of different spheres, including in the home, we have to understand that the power of our leadership is actually found in our obedience to God. Not in our wisdom, but in our submission. The key to effective leadership is obedience. So the question is, are we obeying to God? This is where uh, the, the peculiar challenge of raising sons, and I'm, I'm, it's such a joy and blessing to raise sons, but what I'm conveying to them is, sons, I want you to become men, and you have to understand that what you're doing now as sons is going to be very consistent. I want you to obey daddy and follow the word of the Lord, because when you become a daddy yourself, you need to keep following the word of the Lord. That's how they will thrive, is putting their faith in God and following his word and the power of the Spirit. If authority figures don't use their authority to image the glory of God, what they're going to do is prime their people to seek the glory of idols. And if that is what happens, that's going to lead to ruin and death. True justice Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Life flows from true justice. And I think the life that's ha- that is had in mind here, and we'll see this in Deuteronomy 3, I think this is the eternal life that comes when God restores his people and gives them a circumcised heart and brings them home to his presence forever. True justice leads to perfect eternal life. And what we have to wrestle with is those who especially as men who are heads over these different spheres, is that we fail. We fail as heads. And then every one of us who's under some sort of sphere of authority, we also fail to submit to those spheres of authority, to obey with that full orb respect. We fail on both ends of this. And what we're seeing here is when we fail, when we fail to do this justice, when we sin, there is a curse that comes on the land. There's a guilt declared on the land. And it requires payment. So when God the Son came as that perfect prophet, priest, and king, he rendered that justice by dying on the cross. All those failures, whether as a head or as a follower, all those failures for God's people dealt with in full through perfect justice and judgment rendered through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. That's it. 
through that perfect justice, we are forgiven and that curse is lifted so that we can inherit a new earth, a new creation where righteousness dwells. And like we talked about from Psalm 34, when Jesus returns, he's going to wipe away all that wickedness. He's going to make the land such that there will only ever be justice and righteousness in it. And we will see God face to face. And so as we consider the immediate import of submitting to imperfect authorities, I just want to give us a couple of closing encouragements. One of them is that that imperfect authority that we have to deal with, whether it's in the civil sphere, in the family, or even in the church, that imperfect authority is there for our good. No matter how wicked that authority is, they can't take away our salvation. They can't do it. Romans 8 makes that clear. There's nothing, no ruler that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And what we also have to consider is that as we receive evil from wicked authorities, we have to be ready to return good out of that loving compassion for those authorities so that they might even be saved. Because we are living testimony that God saves sinners. And one of the things I want to encourage us with is that if we face the prospect of martyrdom, the early church believed that you would have an extra gifting of the Spirit to help you through that moment. When we face the idea of martyrdom, we don't do that on our own strength. Christ has given us the Spirit, and he will empower us for whatever calling we have, including martyrdom. So when we think about that prospect and how terrifying it is, understand that the Spirit is going to be with us. Jesus will never leave us or forsake us, and we will be empowered even for that end. Those wicked rulers are squarely under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They will not reign forever, but Jesus will. And we can go to him for true healing and for true hope. And let's do that. Father, I'm, I'm thankful that we can submit to your son, knowing that you do work all things together for our good, even these challenging things. So help us to truly be a submissive people, that we would put our faith in Christ, that that faith result in obedience and faithfulness in these dynamics of interacting with the government in an honoring, respectful, submissive way. And we pray that you would make our testimony faithful and effective, that those around us would see your glory, that you would save those around us who are lost, and that in our church and in our lives, you would be praised in all things. In Christ's name, amen.